Hola. If I understand right, this is uh, December 26th, 7th, last Sunday of the year. What an important time. It's been a good year, hasn't it? Our message today is going to be called Stand and Sacrifice. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 8. It is good to be back. The Salinas family sends greetings. They spent their first evening in their brand new home last night. (laughs) What a good day. In Deuteronomy 8, starting in verse 10. When you have eaten... And are satisfied. Praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God. Failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I am giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied. Say satisfied. Satisfied. When you build fine houses. Come on, somebody. Fine houses with white and green roofs. Fine houses that resemble Noah's Ark. When you build fine houses and settle down. Come on now. Settle down. The only time settle down is ever really a good word is when you're teaching a two-year-old's class. We spend most of our time in church not trying to get people to settle down, but trying to stir them up. And there's a reason for that. The whole world is trying to settle you down. The whole world is trying to lull you into apathy. Give you a good case of affluenza. It turns out that when you build fine houses and you settle down and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all you have is multiplied then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I want to begin this message at the end of the year with a reminder. The reminder for us is that there is a role for adversity in every man and woman's life in this room. We don't like adversity, we don't long for adversity, but adversity is good for me. How many of you like Snickers bars? Oh man, there's not anything quite like a Snickers bar, except a deep fried Snickers bar. I took one out of a gas station last night, somewhere between Dairy Queen's. And it says on it, complainer. That's what it says. Complainer. I don't want to be known as a complainer. And I complained too much in 2015. I complained too much during the last nine days. In fact, I complained enough to make myself sick. The size of Snickers bar that I should have had... 
was something more like that. You know, Snickers logo has always been something about being satisfied. They're satisfied and they're satisfied. Of course, the Lord wants you. Of course, the Lord wants you to have what you need. Of course, the Lord will provide for you what it takes to get his will done on the earth. The question is, if this is what is needed, is this really what you want? Because you might make yourself spiritually sick. God warned his people on the precipice of a very great campaign. You're going to go into this land because I'm going to give it to you. You're going to fight for it, but I'm going to give it to you. And after they fought for it and he gave it to them, he was concerned that when adversity was alleviated, their hearts would begin to drift. So somebody say, praise God for adversity. Now, that is not a popular message today. I probably will not be buying the compact center anytime soon. But adversity is necessary in the life of every believer because it tunes our heart towards the Lord. It causes us to be in touch with our brokenness. It causes us to hurt just a little bit and remember that we need a very great Savior. Then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. How many times in our life have we forgotten where we started from? We started from a watery grave that was symbolic of a very real grave that had enslaved you all of your life. And somehow... Jesus Christ being raised from the dead and raising us from the dead in moments of our life is not enough. We also need something else. Boy, put in that light, that's pretty tough, isn't it? I'd like to show you a picture. Actually, before the picture. I want to show you something altogether more personal. <clears throat> it's a very large pair of jeans. And uh, the first thing that happened was they had to go below the knees. And that's because when the Browns design a house, it's a beautiful house. It's an amazing house. Charlie got it right down to every board. I mean, you don't know how hard that is to do. And the pitch that Charlie designed on a roof... Shows me how long it's been since Charlie has roofed a house. I don't know whether you can see this, but this is not supposed to be there. Which is very revealing of a lot of things that just shouldn't be there. If you find yourself hanging off of a roof in Mexico, praying that you do not slide or fall, Standing with quivering thighs. Knowing that the Lord has called you to do it, but fear is so creeping up your spine that it is paralyzing. And you're moving forward, but you're pretty sure every step is probably going to be your last. And you look down and watch your brother frolicking from truck to truck, bouncing on the very ladders that you are clinging with dear life to. 
I don't know. But I found out that I have the ability to complain more than a little bit. Which is really a lack of gratefulness, isn't it? It's a lack of gratefulness that I have those steps to take. A lack of gratefulness that I have those breaths to make. A lack of gratefulness for the part of the house that was already built. Now, granted, there were some discipling moments as well. Those of you that benefited from that, praise God. Those of you that are still chafed from it, we're going to have a healing service (laughs) after this. We learned things like we don't stand outside the truck and watch an elder lift a ladder in a truck. We learned those kind of things. We learned that no woman will ever outrun an LCF man to pick up nails when they're asked for. We learned those kind of things. Used to be we learned those kind of things in our homes growing up. Now, too many parents have left that work to their pastors. But it fell to us, so we're going to do it. Just like that house fell to us, and we're going to do it. Now, this next one's going to get me in a bit of trouble. I'd like you to read with me Proverbs 21 and verse 9. In fact, when somebody has it, just say, man, I got it. Better to live on the corner of the roof than to share a house with a quarrelsome wife. Every time we picked up nail guns, they stopped working. We ran out of nails and went to five stores to get nails in. Matamoros, Mexico does not sell roofing nails coiled together for a gun. Turns out that it's cheaper to hire people to do it than it is to buy the gun. So we got somebody to go across the border and bring us back those nails. And when they brought those nails back, we were so excited because, oh, how much faster it's going to go with that nail gun. Fired nine nails, and the nail gun shot into pieces in every direction. We got one side of the roof put up Fought through wrong materials. Fought through all kinds of difficulty. Our trip got cold several times. People had to go in different directions. And when they went in their different directions, it left a smaller crew every time. Better to live on the corner of a roof than with a quarrelsome wife. Now, what do you do if you're on the corner of a roof... And you have a quarrelsome wife. What do you do with that? My wife was an amazing help. I think it was the hat that did it. She sat out in the field on top of a ladder for eight hours. And with absolute precision and complete reproducing of events, over and over and over, continued to call a foot a quarter of an inch. And, um, nope, nope, that needs to come up a quarter of an inch. Nope, nope, an, another quarter of an inch. And we quarter of an inched our way all the way into 12 inches. Do that math. Now multiply it out times 1,200 square feet plus a pitch that Jesus wouldn't want a roof. Can we say that without our brothers, this would be very, very difficult? Yeah, Yeah, I want to show you something about that, about our brothers. Could we go 
then to Proverbs 17, 17. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for... A brother is born for adversity. You find out things like Eric Treister can cling to a roof like a spider. Justin Treister can lay over the ridge on a roof and stay there for about six hours like he's taking a nap. There is no amount of weight that Buddy Brasso cannot raise up a ladder. You give him a do-rag and the man turns into a little bull. Church, there's going to be adversity in everything that you ever set out to do for the Lord. And if there is no adversity, then it probably was not from God because it is adversity that is our trainer and our teacher. If everything was easy, your pride would grow. This is why when you got into fine houses and you settled down and your silver and gold increased, that's when pride would begin to be a problem. But it was not a problem when there was a serious struggle because the struggle created a very great dependency upon the Lord. I went to Mexico 10 days ago hoping to gather the materials and begin. In a few days, way ahead of schedule, had the entire first floor built. Thank you, Squirrel Team 6. Squirrel Team 6 met with the Navy walruses, and they they got the first floor done ahead of schedule. When you're building with Squirrel Team 6, you have to be very careful, though. Things like... Is that board flush? That's not clear enough. Or did you cut it on the mark? That also is completely ambiguous. Task like measuring from one corner to another corner to make sure something is square. It's two measurements. And yet it really could take three hours to find the tape measure that you're standing on. Squirrel Team 6 got better and better and better. And they got their fair share of chiding. They may have even been ridiculed a little bit. Taunted some. And you know what? They rose and rose and rose. Because in the heart of every young man... There is a little warrior that is waiting to be challenged, waiting to rise and press into that adversity so that they can overcome. This is why they sword fight in the backyard. This is why from the time they're little bitty, whether they've ever seen a gun or not, they pick up sticks and shoot the bad guy. It is in the hearts of men to overcome. And you cannot overcome if there is no adversity. By the end of the trip, they had become little general contractors explaining to everyone else how it should be done, complete with YouTube demonstrations. I would like to show a video before we move to our next scripture. Okay, I'm standing upstairs. That's the stairwell. I'm going to turn back around on the stairwell. When you come up the stairs, there's two bedrooms. 
one to the right and one to the left. So here's what they look like. So it's a pretty big bedroom. There's a window in it. Um, can be kind of a crawl space that is for closets on the sides. We're in the middle of wiring it now. And uh, these rooms are identical proportions. So the other side's exactly the same. And then this will function as a closet or a storage right here. Or God willing, maybe one day a bathroom. <laughs> so coming down the stairs, the landing and we'll see the front door. The front door. See the guys in here have a header into another big room. Over here where Gabe is is a little closet where the guys are probably is a dining room kitchen area and uh, that's another bedroom. Uh, Mario's already got electricity in it. Matt and the guys put a panel up back here. It's the other bedroom, bedroom door. From back here by the panel, kind of turn. It's probably making everybody sick with the turning. Where all those materials are now is a pretty functional closet. And the stairs go up. You can get an idea for the size and uh, scope of all of this. Uh, we have about 600 feet square feet downstairs and 600 upstairs. Four bedrooms plus a living space and a kitchen uh, is a serious upgrade for this family. Here's the front door and uh, we'll take pictures from the outside. That wind that you're hearing is ferocious. It's over 30 mile an hour gust. Pretty tough to put up uh, rolled roofing in. So, let's talk about that for just a minute. Obviously, now that the project is done, and I'm going to show you another picture of that in a minute, everybody feels good about it. But what is going on an hour before this is we have figured out that the uh, rolled roofing that we want to put on in single layers uh, from one side of the house to the other is about 80 pounds per run. And because our ladders are not long enough and our arms are not strong enough, you have to get on your tiptoes with a ladder and a truck bed just to, uh, to push it. And there are not enough people to hold that in a straight line while some other angelic crew nails it above you. Which means that every time you hold it up, it wants to sag and tear. So we eventually cut it into eight-foot strips. Thought, well, it's five times the work, but we'll do it. And as we cut it into eight-foot eight strips, the wind began to pick up and pick up and pick up. Now we had eight-foot sails that almost no one could hold. Adversity causes you to have to seek the Lord. Turn with me to Isaiah 30 and verse 15. <coughs> Say there when you're there. This is what the sovereign Lord, 
The Holy One of Israel says, In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you would have none of it. You said, No, we will flee on horses, therefore you will flee. You said, We will ride off on swift horses, therefore your pursuers will be swift. A thousand will flee at the threat of one. At the threat of five, you will flee away till you are left like a flagstaff on a mountaintop, like a banner on a hill. Yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Before we finish this, there's this point in all projects, not just building, all, where you are exasperated. There is nothing that is going right. You're pretty sure that you're going to have to find somebody else to do this. We'll just pull out a phone and Google Mexican roofing crew. Except Google doesn't work and there are no organized crews in that area. You are the crew, which is why God put you there. But no matter how run, how fast you run, your enemy is just as swift. That's what's happening in Isaiah. And I want you to understand it is from the Lord. That frustration is from the Lord because do you know what it made us do? Fall on our faces and pray. I'm not going to lie, I walked around a building away from everybody for a minute and cried just a little bit. I said, Lord, I, we've already bought the same roofing materials twice. And now we're about to have them all ruined, which will mean a third roof on the same building. This is your money. This is people's offerings. This is as serious as it gets. And I'm blowing this, and I don't have the first clue what to do. Now, the part of this story that would be great is if I told you then the wind died down. Right? Wouldn't it? The calm came. It didn't. Not, not at all. In fact, it got worse and worse and worse throughout the day. But what did happen is a calm came over me. It's what Pastor Sutherland calls a comedy of errors. When you run out of nails and you buy nails and the gun breaks... When you cut your strips into shorter strips and they're the second kind of roof that you had to buy, I, at some point you just go, <laughs> this is getting funny. It was also about that time that we found out that a 58-year-old Mexican man named Mario Salinas is also part spider monkey. <laughs> we got in the last few square feet of his house Working, ready, almost done. When the gun broke, he prayed and fixed the gun. We asked, how did you fix it? He goes, I have no idea. I took it all apart and I put it back together and I prayed and it works. <laughs> so they men, give me the gun. <laughs> he also kicked off his shoes at 58 years old and hopped on the steepest part of the roof, wrapped toe straps that were wrapped around a vehicle on the other side of the house around his waist, and literally ran from piece to piece, nailing it down. I said, Mario, I couldn't believe you could do that. I couldn't believe I could do it either, but it was my house. He began to fight for what the Lord was giving him. Brothers were born in that adversity. Some of you had to sacrifice by going, and I know how hard that is. I've been on that side of things. I watched Buddy Brasso cry his shirt wet because he had to leave. Some of you sacrificed by staying. I also know how hard that is. 
Watch people text an elder in our church asking him if he was staying at an all-inclusive resort in Mexico. Yes, he was. Every day with Jesus is a resort. I want to show you why the adversity is worth it, though. Can we show that last picture? <clears throat> By the way, almost every member of the team had flu-like symptoms the whole time, too. We have no idea why. Some of our feet swelled where they didn't hardly fit in shoes. Um, turn with me to James, the first chapter. Apparently, adversity does not stop at borders, huh? In James, the first chapter, starting in verse 2, consider it pure joy. Say pure joy. joy. Chris, you're sitting next to pure joy. John, you know pure joy. Consider it pure joy. My brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish. Say, must finish. If you say that you're going to do something in the kingdom, it is absolutely unacceptable for you to leave it undone. If you say that you're going to be somewhere, it is unacceptable for you to not go. When you make a mistake... When you sleep through an alarm, when you do not handle a situation in the way that your king wants you to handle it, own up to it immediately. Own up to it as fast as you can possibly get it out of your mouth. Verbalize it as quick as you can, like unloading a burden that should not be on your shoulders. But do not leave it unsaid, undone, and just act like it didn't happen. It's not just loathes them to God, it's loathes them to your brothers. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. The purpose in building the house is not just in completing the house. It is in completing something inside of you. At some point in projects that are bigger than you, in ambitious things, at some point you always find out the same thing. You do not have what it takes. But you know the one that does. At some point... You are broken and in need of your master. And if you are never at that broken place in need of your master, you never get to learn what it is to be carried by him. When we insulate ourselves from all risk, when we calculate out all risk, when we become risk assessors, rather than bold, faith, fire-breathing, spirit-filled, devil-taking, land-grabbing, Kingdom advancers. We rob ourselves of something. It's in these moments that you see these kids' faces. The living area where they're at right now is about 300 square feet. Follow me here. Father and mother. 
17-year-old daughter, 15-year-old daughter, 13-year-old daughter, 11-year-old daughter, and 9-year-old daughter in 300 square feet. Now follow me the rest of the way. No plumbing. Now follow me the rest of the way. No bathrooms. No room dividers. Just 300 square feet. And they're not 35 miles on the other side of an imaginary line on a map. Are they worth less to the king? No. They were so happy they didn't know what to do. I don't think they were as happy about the house, though, as watching people that they perceived to be strong struggle for them and fight for them. See, when we give out of our, our great abundance, something of that struggle is missed. As we move forward in this message, I would like to submit to you an idea that sacrifice is not really sacrifice when it doesn't cost you anything. So there was a time period where that Thanksgiving meal meant you killed your turkey. I mean, you raised it all year. You might even begin to care for it. My weenie dog is in the truck because I couldn't bear to leave him at home. He looked at me this morning with those ridiculous eyes that said two things. I want to go with you, Dad. And if you don't take me with you, I'm going to mess up your bedroom. <laughs> and if you began to care for this animal and then you had to go outside and kill it so that your friends could celebrate, that meant something just a little more to you than if you stopped by H-E-B. So much of what we do now is called sacrifice, but it's not really sacrifice. It has so defined the gospel that when we're faced with sacrifice of any kind, so defined rather the church, that when we're faced with real sacrifice of any kind, we think it's unfair. We think that it ought not be happening to us, that it's strange, that we must have done something wrong. We fail to realize God is developing us in it. If it takes more than a few hours, something that should have taken... I don't know, two hours, ended up taking three days. And if it takes more than a few hours, we're pretty sure God's not in it. Because to us, anointed means it's quick and easy. Man, that worship service Matthew did was so anointed. Why? Because everything went so well. Is it less anointed if you break two strings? Does the anointing of God depend on strings? But somehow or another, it's possible to walk away from services and go, man, that was such a struggle. I don't know what's wrong. We're just not anointed. No, we've misunderstood. Anointed means to be smeared with Him. It means that His presence has been rubbed on you. Tell me, how easy was Jesus' life? I'd like to take you to a very familiar story. I was not here for Christmas, so I want to read to you Isaiah 7. How many of you read Isaiah 7 for Christmas? Say so out loud if you did. Wow, none of you read your Bibles on Christmas anymore. How many of you don't know what Isaiah 7 says before you get there? That'll help me. 
Okay, I got it. You'll recognize it here in a minute. Isaiah 7, picking up in verse 14 will be the familiar part. Then I'll go back to the beginning so you know what we're talking about. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Now, do you recognize Christmas scripture? Yes. Now, do you recognize Christmas scripture? Yes. Don't you quit on me. I fought awful hard to be here. We hear this most Christmases. It's written across banners. It's on Hallmark cards. It's at nativity scenes. It's for sure at every Catholic mass that there is anywhere in the world. Have you ever considered its original context? Because its original context has something to do with our times today and our hatred of adversity and worship of success. Start with me in 7.1. When Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, king Rezin of Aram, and Pekah, son of Ramalah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Judah, but they could not overpower it. Let me help you here because I know that these are not household names for you. How many of you have heard of King Hezekiah? We sent Squirrel Team 6 looking for a passage in Hezekiah. It took them 24 hours to realize there is no book called Hezekiah. But they learned a very valuable lesson that day. Elder Steve is not always being serious with them and they need to learn their Bibles. Hezekiah's daddy was Ahaz. Ahaz is the king of Judah. Say Ahaz. <clears throat> Pekah is the king of Israel and Rezin is the king of Aram. So at this time, Israel has... Uh, a bit of a civil war. Really, Israel is split into two groups. The southern states, if you will, are called Judah. The northern states, if you will, are called Israel. What we have is we have Pekah, the northern states, the northern tribes, allying with an enemy. Say enemy. enemy. You ever had your family members ally with an enemy against you? Man, that is tough. This is a tough time in Israel's history. The little southern kingdom is outmanned and outnumbered. And the northern kingdom, who are their brothers, the same tribe, the same family, the tribe of Israel, broken into 12 tribes, now split 10 against 2. Say 10. Against 2. And the ten in the north team up with Aram. That's modern-day Syria. And they're going to invade Judah. What do you do when even your brothers have turned on you? When the brothers that were born in adversity have become the adversity against you? Say, well, you just stand with the Lord. The problem is, is Ahaz is not a very strong man. Ahaz is a bit of a compromiser himself. To be honest, he's kind of a weenie. He barely wins any battles in the Bible, and when he does, it's because God's promise is at stake and no other reason. 
So we have two kings against one, and the two kings that are coming are comprised of family members. Listen to what that does. Now the house of David, this is the southern kingdom, was told Aram has allied itself with Ephraim. So the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. I know a little something about being shaken by the wind. Amen, Treaster? Treaster got up on the ridge with me and the wind was blowing hard enough that his beard was about six feet long. It was glorious. They're shaking. They don't just have to fight an enemy. They're going to have to fight false brothers. That's pretty tough. Nobody ought to be in that position. And yet, this is the context of this familiar Christmas story. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out, you and your son, Shir Jashub, to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to Washerman's Field. Say to him, Be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. <clears throat> Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood. Because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and of the son of Ramallah, Aram, Ephraim, and Ramallah's son have plotted your ruin, saying, Let us invade Judah. Let us tear it apart and divide it among ourselves and make the son of Tabeel king over it. Now, let me ask you, if I ran out to you and I said, Hey, 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 let's pick somebody. Mario, don't be afraid. Your brother, Spencer, and an enemy... They're plotting to kill you, to dispose of you, and to put somebody in your family all at once. But don't be afraid. Have I helped or hurt the situation? You, hey, I don't want y'all to think about this for a minute. Now, what will you do? You'll think about that for a minute, right? Look, don't be afraid. But everybody wants to kill you. Don't be afraid. But even your brothers are allied against you. Don't be afraid. And remember, Ahaz is not a very strong man to start with. Yet this is what the sovereign Lord says. It will not take place. It will not happen. How often does fear make something real in your life that actually never even occurs? <clears throat> Why do you lock your doors? Let's just start there. Why do you lock your doors? For protection. What's, what's the most basic reason you put a deadbolt on a door? So no one breaks in. How many people in this room have survived to this point without ever having an armed robbery at your house? But have you ever got out of the bed in the middle of the night because you realized the door wasn't locked and got to the door and locked it or left the house, got all the way down the street, turned around and come back to lock that door? I'm not suggesting it's wrong at all. So don't, don't get mad at me. I'm simply saying fear will make you do things and it never actually even happened. He says, it will not take place. It will not happen for the head of Aram is Damascus and the head of Damascus is only resin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. Hey, those northern ten tribes who are giving you a problem, give me 65 years and they won't even be a people. Can I say that almost every person in this room in 65 years, you won't be a problem to anybody? 
Most of the time, you can't have a problem that lasts more than 65 years. But how long is 65 years? Turns into things like, man, I've had to live with this my whole life. Yeah, but how long is your life? If all you got to do is put up with whatever you're putting up with for this lifetime, when weighed with eternity, what is that? Do we need to get an eternal perspective sometimes? Do we need to grab it from God's perspective? The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is only Ramallah's son. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. That is a prophetic word for the church of our time. If you do not stand in your faith, you will not stand at all. Little by little, the enemy will have overcome in every important area until we stand with a form of godliness, but we have no power. I've been told I have an alpha spirit. I serve the alpha and the omega. What kind of spirit did he have? I've been told from time to time that I need to be, well, more gentle. All of those things are true and a whole lot more that people failed to say. Let me say this, though. We are probably moving in these next few years into an area of Christianity where people will become disappointed with the pansy pastors. Because when they give up the faith lock, stock, and barrel for something that looks more like Islam or something that is more acceptable to the masses, then how happy will you be with the gentle pastors? The kingdom of God, here, here we go, King James fans. The kingdom of God suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. What does that mean? Oh, I know what it means every day of my life, especially standing on top of a roof when even the spiritual powers seem to have aligned against you. It means that if you are not forceful in the things of God, you will not stand at all. This is the setting that the sign is given in. We say, oh, look, the virgin is with child. Amen. All is well. It was at a time when Judah was threatened and the northern kingdom had already so corrupted itself that it really couldn't represent God. All that we know would be wiped out. What had ruined the earlier kingdom was compromise. What would eventually cause captivity in the southern kingdom was also compromise you know where it starts hating adversity you compromise because it's just hard why do you pay seven dollars for a gallon of milk at 7-eleven when three miles down the road it's two dollars cheaper why do you do it because it's easier right because we just don't want to go that far and it's easier for us sometimes just to do the easy thing. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. That sounds honorable, doesn't it? I'm not going to put the Lord... 
our God to the test. This is similar to what Jesus said to Satan, except sometimes a man can say all of the right things and you can just feel something's wrong with him. It's my opinion that Ahaz says, no, no, I'm not going to put the Lord our God to the test because he had no belief that the Lord would give the sign that Isaiah was saying. You know, when the devil tells Jesus <coughs> to turn bread into stones or to uh, jump off of a high place by the temple, and, and he says, the scripture says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Something was being suggested that was not God. Isaiah is suggesting that God is saying, I want to give you a sign. And he said, no, 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 let's not put the Lord to the test. He's a coward too. No, 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 no. We'll pray for you in a private room somewhere. But definitely not in front of everybody. Because I'll look bad if God doesn't come through. Cowardice Christianity is everywhere. And I don't really even want to preach about that today. I want to talk about the nobility of sacrifice. And that if you don't learn to love adversity, if you don't learn to embrace your circumstance, we will not stand at all because the scripture does not say things are getting progressively better. It says that they will get worse and worse and worse and we better learn to lean into the wind and love it, recognizing that it is shaping us for the finest hour of the body of Christ on earth. Back to Mexico for just a second. 53 people. 53 people from this ministry crossed a border that they say Americans shouldn't cross. Went to a town where none of the other churches are going. And when I say none, I mean there used to be hundreds and now there's not even a handful. 53 people went safely. And 53 people came back safely. Babies went. Women went. Uh, more mature folks went. And they all came back and they're better for it. You know why? When you risk something for your king and he comes through for you, you trust him more. When you insulate yourself from all risk and and you, you eliminate sacrifice or you have sacrifice that is not really sacrifice. You know, the billionaire who gives $1,000, it's not like the widow who gave a mite. When we have sacrifice that's not sacrifice, we don't learn what it is to depend upon the Lord. I went and sat behind a building, put my head between my knees and cried and said, Lord, I do not know what to do here. It was the turning point in the whole thing. It was that moment. Not, none of our circumstances changed. We just said, there's no other choice. God has said it, it must be done. If you fall off a roof, you fall off a roof. There's something very freeing in accepting whatever fate the Lord gives you. There is something very chaining about being responsible for your own fate all of the time. I want to finish this for you. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, Here now, you house of David. It is, is, it, is it not enough to try the patience of men? Will you try the patience of my God also? By the way, this is Isaiah 7. Isaiah 6 is Isaiah's calling. 
How would you like your very first prophetic task to be this? Wouldn't you prefer to prophesy, you know, all your children will be born naked? Or the Lord loves you, least likes you, he's watching you. Wouldn't you rather prophesy something ambiguous? Listen to how specific. Isaiah left no hedging of his bets here. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. You find out, Emmanuel, of course, means God is with us. You find out God is with you when you're in the toughest situations that human beings can be in. You find out God is with you when you have come to the end of your rope and all that is left is God. If we never get there, then you never learn that lesson. And we spend so much time protecting ourselves to not get there. Listen, a time of extraordinary compromise in this time, right here, the kingdom is at stake. There's a time of extraordinary compromise in the first century. And this sign is double fulfilled. It is truly fulfilled in the first century. The Sadducees had given up on most of the Bible. They no longer believed most of the Bible was true. They simply thought what was important was their tradition and their position. The Pharisees believed in every word in the Bible, but so had so contorted it into a system of legalistic righteousness that few could carry the load that was put on men's shoulders. That is the time that Mary gave birth to Jesus. The sign that God is with us. A time of trouble. You want to see Christ birthed in your lives? You have to stand in difficulty. Not in the future, now. In fact, one of the things that I'm going to brag for just a minute on Pastor Treister in the church in Victoria. New Life Fellowship in Victoria just gave $1,500 to India. That's a lot. Their congregation is quite a bit smaller than this one. He gave money to Mexico as well and then went. And at every turn, he said, Pastor, I don't think I have enough sacrifice in this. Would you let me get this? And of course, we fought over it and he didn't get to get it. But his heart was always to give more, to go more, to do more. Pastor Treister is at least my age, if not just a little bit older. He carried whatever was the heaviest, even though he was stature-wise not the largest man there. He did whatever he could possibly do. There is a heart that God will bless, but it's not the one that protects its own life. Did you enjoy yourselves, those of you that went? I want to share with you as quickly as I can some very noteworthy points. Could you give me your full attention for a few noteworthy points? How many of you have noticed in 1 John 2, 15 through 17? Let's put that on the screen. There's a fairly famous passage here. If I'm going to read it in the NIV, but then I'm going to talk to you about it from the New King James because that's how most of you know it. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, where it says cravings of sinful man, that's usually referred to as the lust of the flesh. 
<coughs> the lust of his eyes and the boasting of what he has and does. That's often referred to as the pride of life. Comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away. But the man who does the will of God lives forever. The lust of the flesh, the pride of life, the lust of the eyes, whatever those are, they will eventually fade away. But the man who does the will of God, he lives forever. This is the difference between a temporal perspective and an eternal perspective. This is the difference between standing in a difficult situation or not standing at all. Is knowing the difference between that which will matter in 10,000 years and that which at best can only afflict you for another 65 years. How did the kingdom of Israel get into the shape that it was in so that the northern kingdom was fighting with an enemy against the southern? It began in Solomon's time. Do you know how wise Solomon was? How many of you know that he was wise? Did God bless Solomon? Did God love Solomon? He gave him a name, Jedediah, loved of the Lord. Solomon was the man on earth. People came from other nations to hear his wisdom. Can we say that Solomon was blessed? The Bible itself protects those that it blesses. Do you remember when Israel went into the promised land, they were warned ahead of time not to let their heart get a certain way? Listen to what else kings were warned about. Go to Deuteronomy 17. In Deuteronomy 17, when you get to verse 14, everybody in the room, tell us you're there. In Deuteronomy 17, 14. When you enter the land, the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settle in it. And you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us. Be sure to appoint over you the king the Lord your God chooses. He must not be from, kin uh, <laughs> must not be from among your own brothers. I'm sorry. He must be from among your own brothers. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not a brother Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire great number of horses. Say he can't have horses. Or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives. Say many wives. Many wives. Or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver. Say large amounts of silver. Follow me here. He can't have large amounts of horses. He can't have large amounts of wives. Not large wives, but large amount of wives. He's not allowed to have large amounts of silver or gold. Three things. When you think about those three things, the horse of the day pulled the chariot. It was for military might. It was to protect the flesh. Why would a man want many wives? It's the lust of his eyes. Why does he need much silver and gold? Because it's the pride of his life. In the law, we find the foundation that the New Testament stands on. And the king, who would be the leader, had to protect himself from the lust of the flesh. He had to protect himself from the lust of his eyes. He had to protect himself 
from the pride of life. Turn with me to Ecclesiastes 2 in verse 1. I thought in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. It turns out that him receiving everything that he wanted in the end didn't turn out to be good. It was a little bit like eating all of this instead of this. This is a blessing. This is a blessing that you have turned into a curse. How do you think they meant for you to eat this? I give that to my eight-pound dachshund outside. He will eat the entire thing. And then I won't tell you what he does after that, but it's not pretty. In our lives, the more that we're given, there is a risk that comes with it. The more a man accomplishes it in his life, there's a risk that comes with it. He can become uncorrectable. The pride of life can so swell in him that nobody can talk to him. The more that you give a man, it can teach him that he deserves and is entitled and deserves and deserves and deserves. And pretty soon, it's insatiable. Could never have enough. You ever walked into somebody's closet and in a million lifetimes, they could never wear all the clothes in it? I'm not talking about because we got too big or too small. I'm talking about they literally have more clothes than they could wear to any event. Do you know that the closet in my house right now is bigger than the space that those five girls have been sleeping in where they sleep? We joked John and Joy and us lived together for years that in the new house that John and Joy could just take the closet. John refused to be known as the man that came out of the closet and so we scrapped the idea. My point as we move forward with this is God adds adversity because He loves us and He trains us. It's not Him punishing us. It's Him getting our ears tuned to His command. The reason that we have to fight through things, the reason we have to wait for things, the reason that you endure for them is you value them when you get them. You have to depend on Him to get them. And if it's given to you in great abundance, a man who receives his whole inheritance at once, in the end, it's not a blessing. How about Ecclesiastes 2, 8? Just skip down seven verses. I amassed silver and gold for myself. Was he supposed to do that? And the treasure of the kings and provinces. I acquired men and women singers and a harem as well. The delights of the heart of man. Man's heart is wicked. These are the very things that God told him he could not have. But he decided to pleasure his own heart. In 1 Kings 10, 28, write it down. He says that he went back to Egypt and got horses. Let's go to 1 Kings 11, 9 through 10. 1 Kings 11, 9 through 10. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord. Well, how do you think that happened? How do you think his heart turned away? Could it have been all of the money? Could it have been all of the women? Could it have been all of the military might, all of the horses that he amassed around him to where he had no need and nothing could make him happy anymore? Why is Christianity dying in America even while churches are getting bigger than they've ever been at any time in history anywhere on the globe? 
because it's all about accumulation. None of it is about patient endurance on the part of the saints. Our doctrine has changed. Our altar calls have changed. The things that are expected of converts have changed. The very idea that there would be repentance and fruit that proves it has totally been lost. Why is Christianity thriving in every third world country that it's been introduced in? Because there's adversity. Please don't think something strange is happening to you when it's hard. Please don't complain like your pastor does. Let's learn. Let's grow. Let's lean into the teaching of the Lord. It says, The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. God appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, Since this is your attitude and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I command you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Oh, church, Solomon lost everything that God gave him because his life became about accumulation rather than about adversity. If when offered horses, the lust of the flesh, he had said no. If when offered many wives, the lust of the eyes, he said no. If when offered much silver, the pride of life, he had said no. then perhaps Solomon would have gone down in history as the man who remained the smartest man on the planet. Let us think about Jesus for a minute without turning there. When he was taken to the temple roof and he was told to jump off that Psalm 91 would be true for him and he decided not to put the Lord to the test, when he was told to test the physical protection of his flesh and he rebuked it, is that not rebuking the lust of the flesh? When he is told to turn stones into bread, look at those stones. Man, wouldn't that be good bread? You could read about this in Matthew 4 or Luke 4. Would that not be an example of Jesus having cast down the lust of the eyes when he's offered the kingdoms of the world? Is that not an example of him turning down the pride of life? Of course it is. Where Solomon failed, Jesus Succeeded. It turns out that we need to be denied things. We don't need every piece of food that we see. We don't need every new toy that we see. We don't need all the money that we can gather. It turns out that we need to be denied things and struggle to ensure that our hearts stay devoted to the Lord. Well, that's a message that's not being preached. It is being lived in this place. It is being taught in this place and in remnant churches everywhere, but it is not the popular message. And so we think something strange is happening when you're doing a building project and nothing is going right. When you want to put together 600 bags for the prison and your fruit is rotting before you can get it in. When you want to put together 600 bags for the prison, but the day that you set it up is a day that no one will be here. Right? 
we think something strange is happening. And really what is happening is the Lord is training us. And that's not strange at all. It's altogether wonderful. It's altogether beautiful. I want to go to 1 Kings 12 with you. In 1 Kings 12, a very short passage that defines the real reason there was a civil war in Israel. It began with one king who compromised in every area, but he was so blessed most people probably didn't notice. And then it moved into a time period where the compromises could no longer be hidden. We move from Solomon to the time period of Rehoboam and Jeroboam. This is the second monarchy in Israel and in Judah, uh, starting in verse 25. Then Jeroboam fortified Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. From there he went out and built up Peniel. Jeroboam thought to himself, say, I thought to myself, the kingdom will now likely revert to the house of David. You know what? It had not happened, but fear is compelling him to do something. In fact, God was going to allow Jeroboam to rule over those ten tribes to teach the southern kingdom something. But now fear is compelling him to do something that is wrong. Jeroboam thought to himself, the kingdom will now likely revert to the house of David. If these people go up to offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem... They will again give their allegiance to their Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah. They will kill me and return to King Rehoboam. You know why that would not have happened? Because in the previous chapter, God says it wouldn't happen. In the previous chapter, God said that he was going to use uh, Jeroboam for this purpose. But now fear has manifested in his life something that is not even real. And watch what it makes him do. After seeking advice, after seeking, after seeking, oh man, sometimes you have to go to the throne instead of your telephone. Sometimes you need to get your face in this book instead of your face in Facebook. I have noticed there are many fine prophets on Facebook that are not fine Christians. I've noticed that it is much easier to post a Christian meme than to live a Christian lifestyle. And the same people that have the audacity to bark at those that are getting things done, oh man, they're champions on Facebook, but I've never seen them in the trenches anywhere. In fact, the ones that praise their pastors on Facebook don't even come to church. Somewhere somebody's saying, you know, that's not very nice that he did that. It'd not be very nice to let that go, would it? You know what? Don't pass post on Facebook what a wonderful pastor you think Wade and Matthew and Eric are. Don't post on Facebook how great you think we are and then skip the next three or four church services. Don't do that. It embarrasses me. I have to decide whether to delete you as a friend, edit the post, respond to it, find post. Didn't see you three Sundays in a row, or just let it go. I'd whole ra rather not be in that position. After seeking advice, the king made two golden calves. Don't you want to know who gave that advice? You know what? This worked out so well for Aaron 
when he did it. This, this has been tried. And, I mean, the results speak for themselves. Everybody got to drink some Goldschlager. The Levites became priests because of it. I mean, it was all good, right? Except that 3,000 people also died in the drinking of the gold ground up dust. Next time you pray for gold dust, remember what the last time it happened was, right? I mean, come on, church. I'm not even going to get off on those signs for a minute. But really, the best we can do is pray that gold dust manifest in the church. How about we pray that divinity manifest in your heart and mind? Listen, they said, you know what? Let's go make some gold calves. Do you think that that might appeal <clears throat> to the lust of the eyes? Hmm? To make gold calves? When we're saying, after seeking advice, the king made two gold calves. He said to the people, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. In 1 Kings 12, 26, you know, when he said, the kingdom will now likely revert to David. It's almost like the lust of the flesh has got him. Like fear is creeping into his flesh. When he says in 1 Kings 12, 28, here are gods that you can see. After seeking advice, the king made two golden calves. He said to the people, it is too much for you to go to, to Jerusalem. Here are your gods. It's almost like he's appealing to the lust of their eyes. And in 1231, he, Jeroboam built shrines on the high places and appointed priests from all sorts of people. It's almost like saying whether you're called of God or not, if you're a good businessman, then you're a man of God. If you're called of God or not, and you're a plastic surgeon, then, hey, you're important to us. When the faith of Jesus Christ becomes about appealing to people's eyes, appealing to people's flesh, and appealing to people's life, when all your concerns become about keeping people, entertaining people, and holiness is not important anymore, we're rebuilding Samaria. All of these are present in the church world today. To some extent, they're all present in us today. And you know what the cure for each one? Hey, some of the people might go back to David. That'll be harder for us. We'll have to trust the Lord more. We're putting our trust in a God that we can't see. That's going to be very difficult. We're going to have to trust him more. Priests can only be those he appointed, not the ones we chose. We're going to have to trust him more. In every case, adversity would have led them into faith. And instead, their compromise led them into prosperity without God. See, I didn't tell you about Pekah. He was the most prosperous king in all of the northern kingdom's history. And what is his legacy? He attacked the southern kingdom with an enemy. See, it turns out that when you get everything that you ever wanted, when you wanted it, it corrupts your heart. But if you have to fight to trust the Lord and agonize the good fight of faith, that that is excellent for our hearts.
I have just a couple scriptures that we're going to close with. I want to put them on the screen so I have your full attention. If you have a notebook, write them down. And then, please, keep your eyes here. In Acts 5, 41, let's consider whether this was good or bad for the believers. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Is that good or bad? See, everybody in the world would say, if you got a public beating by religious leaders, you probably did something bad. It's probably wrong. Did God abandon you? Did he forsake you? But how did they take it? We are worthy of suffering disgrace for the kingdom of God. It made them feel closer, not further from the Lord. Is that how that works in your life? 2 Timothy 2, 3. By the way, Acts 5, 41. In their suffering, they didn't forget the Lord, whereas in Deuteronomy 8, in their blessing, they did. Now 2 Timothy 2, verse 3. Endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Jesus Christ. It's almost like Proverbs 17, 17. Brothers are born in adversity is true. It's almost like there's a continuity between the Older and Newer Testament that if you endure hardship with your brothers like a good soldier, you're bonded together. How many of you have been on a missions trip that was longer than a week? Are you closer to the people that you went on that trip with? Absolutely. I mean, is that incredible? Well, why? How many of you have had to live with a family you're not related to for a month or more? At the end of it, you either want to kill them or they are now family. One or the other. And both reveal something about you, doesn't it? See, adversity is a good... We live in a country where we say every child has to have their own room. But we're fine going to Mexico and building one room for two children. Why? I mean, some adversity is good for us. And can we say you can't properly judge how much adversity you need, so we're going to have to trust our Father? Would that be okay? Can we just say Father knows best? Okay. How about Hebrews 2.10? In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Do you mean to tell me that there's a continuity between Hebrews 2.10 and James 1 that you are made complete in persevering through suffering? Do you want to be complete? In the back corner back here, Tavo, do you want to be complete? In this back corner over here, Curtis, do you want to be complete? Then we have to endure hardships. There's no other way to do that. How many toils, trials, and tribulations have you already come through and you're still here? You know, uh, I watched Wade and Christy Sutherland for years and years and years split every meal that they ever ate with us. 
drive older vehicles than I thought anybody should drive. But it has trained them in a certain way. It has blessed them in a certain way. Now Wade's the one that we want in charge of the finances in the church. We want that. He's good at it. He knows what it is to have deferred hope. Yeah? That's an important thing in an instant credit society. What you endure for the Lord also makes you more like the Lord. Hebrews 10, 34. You sympathized with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better in lasting possessions. Why did they joyfully accept the forfeiture of their property? Because they believed they had something eternally better for it. I would like to submit to you before we read our last scripture that every choice that you come down to, every single one, will involve more skin in the kingdom or more investment in the world. Every choice could be divided into one of those two categories. You're either investing more in the kingdom or investing more in this world. And that when you invest in the kingdom, it shows something. It shows that you believe with all of your heart that these 65 years of problems are only 65 years, but those 65 million years that you're with the Lord are where the real treasure is and every moment that we fight to protect these 65 years we are devaluing the heavenly equation the reason you feel so blessed when you go to Mexico is not because God loves Mexicans more than Americans I mean he might but that's not the reason The reason you feel so blessed when you go to India, the reason that you feel so blessed when you go to East Africa or East Europe or any of the other places that we go is because it is an expression that is undeniably sacrificial. It's why we don't do special shopping days. It's why we don't make them like all-inclusive resorts. Because the Christian needs the chance to be tried. The Christian needs the chance to trust their Lord. The Christian needs to grow through that experience. If we could stop lamenting what's happened to us and start praising God for it. Could we go to Hebrews 12, which will be our last scripture for the day? Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him... Why did He do it? Joy set before Him endured the cross. He had to believe that on the other side of that adversity was something that was worth the adversity. 
who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What is on the other side of adversity that is worth it for you? Say, look, pastor, we just cannot make it on a Wednesday night. We got to put our kids to bed. Well, don't get me started on the last three-hour movie that you watched on a school night. Or the last baseball game that you went to. Let's just be honest. This only occurs when you do not value eternal things like you value temporal things. But let me say this. For those of you that give more than you should... For those of you that sleep less than you should. For those of you that cannot stop sharing the goodness about Jesus, no matter what it costs you, it proves something without any doubt. You value the world to come more than your temporary pleasures. I am proud that at this point in our congregation now, all of these years in, 13, 12, something, 13 years in to life in Texas as life-changing ministries. We have more people here that value the world to come than the world that we're living in. I'm glad that I don't have to decide how many other churches could say that. Now what I really want to strive for in 2016... I mean with all of our heart, is that not a single person in this room be left behind what has now become the majority. It's not enough to hang out with people who value the world to come. It's not enough to hang out with people who value the kingdom. You're going to have to stand now or you won't stand at all. We are watching famous Christian after famous Christian bow to this world's agenda every day. It's not even surprising anymore. We are reaching the place where simply reading the Scripture is hateful. And certainly applying scriptural principles is bigoted and backwards. And if you show some leadership, then you've got something wrong with your spirit because we want spineless men who simply pat us all of the time. That's kind of the lay of the land. At LCMF, it will not be that way. In the One Association, it will not be that way. And in grass huts and dirt floors and jungles and in continents all over the world, The real church of Jesus Christ is standing up, but it will never bow the knee in compromise. It learns to love adversity. Could you stand to your feet?